0: You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Good evening. Good to be with you guys tonight. Kids, 5th grade and under, go ahead. If you got checked in, you got a tag with you, you can make your way downstairs. I know you're going to have a great time in Clubhouse. The rest of us are going to start our time by opening up to the book of Proverbs, chapter 30, as we continue in this series working through... Proverbs, and I want us to start this evening, uh, just as we've done already a couple of times, is just start by praying that God would give us insight into his word, right? Proverbs is about us seeing the world the way that God sees it, and so my hope tonight is that as we look at the word itself, that we would have a deeper understanding of what God wants us to see in his word, and so let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Bible that we have in front of us whether it's in a book or whether it's on our phone, we praise you that you've made yourself known to us that we don't have to guess at who you are. And so, Lord, as we read from it, as we look at the lessons learned, contained within these just a couple of verses, Lord, remind us of your love for us and the truth of your word, Lord, that it's so vast that we can take even just one or two verses and spend a lifetime digging into them. But over these next 30 minutes or so, Lord, be with us as we seek to understand that your spirit would give us knowledge into what your spirit has written, and that we would glorify you as we seek to live out the way that you've called us to live. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to focus in here in Proverbs chapter 30 on just two verses. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 5 and 6. I want you to notice that this proverb, unlike a lot of what we've read so far, um, this proverb was not written by Solomon himself. As we get towards the end of Proverbs, we see a couple other authors that, for whatever reason, God decided that these writings would be substantial and significant enough to put within his word. And so, if we look at the very first verse of chapter 30, we see that this particular proverb was written by a named by a man named Agur. Agur, Agur, however you want to say it. It was written by a name man named Agur. He calls his words in verse 1 an inspired utterance. So we're going to look a little bit later about what that means. But we're going to zero in before we get into verses 5 and 6. We want to read beginning in verse 1 because we want to look at these verses in context to see what he's really trying to say and then try to dig out those lessons That we want to learn from these verses. We're going to begin in verse 1 as he writes I am weary, God, but I can prevail. Surely I'm only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I've not learned wisdom, nor have I attained the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? Surely you know. And he says in verse 5, Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Now this man begins this utterance by declaring that he is weary. Now, weariness is a different, deeper kind of being tired. It isn't simply a tired that's caused by a hard day's work or getting only six instead of seven hours of sleep. That's not really what weariness is. Weariness is a kind of tiredness in your soul that can be caused by external circumstances that wouldn't normally cause that regular kind of tiredness. It's a deeper in-your-soul kind of tiredness. And specifically, he points to this lack of wisdom and knowledge of God as the source of his weariness. God, I don't know enough about you. I'm not even a man. I haven't attained to this kind of wisdom, this kind of knowledge about who you are, and I'm I'm weary. And for me, and I'm guessing for you too, more weariness has been brought on over the last couple of years than ever before. I I sometimes laugh when I see kind of those old memes about how horrible 2017 and 2018 were, right? Like it's gotten worse than then. And so we feel this this weariness around us. We're made weary by the constant and, and rapidly changing culture. The uncertainty sometimes of what's right and what's wrong or the inability to make change where we believe change should be made. Weariness at our own struggle with remaining faithful in the face of a faithless world. Or simply weary because like this author, we want to know God more and yet we are surrounded by a culture that thinks it knows better than God. And we're being drawn into it by this world that thinks it knows better than God as he's revealed himself through his word. A world that frankly thinks it knows better than the Bible that you have on your lap. We know very well that God's word is under attack today. Some would say more than ever, but I don't think that's true. Because the reality is that God's word has always been under attack. Today, it's the biblical morality that faces assault, that if you believe that the Bible gives a right and a wrong way of living, then you are narrow-minded, out of date, irrelevant. But at the beginning of the 20th century, at the beginning of the 1900s, the rise of Darwinism put the, the beginning of man on trial. That was what was under assault. The science of the Bible, the origin of humanity, was on trial at the beginning of the 20th century. If you go back 2,000 years before that, Jesus, described as the very Word of God, as He began His earthly ministry, He was rejected. God's Word was rejected. And ultimately, He was arrested and tortured and executed. But if you go centuries before Jesus, when God sent prophets to Israel to warn them of impending punishment because of their sins, these messengers carrying God's Word were reviled and exiled, and imprisoned, or killed. But it goes back even further than that. Because if you go back all the way to the beginning, Genesis chapter 3, God's word is under attack. God's word is under attack by those first words that came out of the serpent's mouth. Did God really say? And that's the moment that God's word came under attack assault, and it's been under assault ever since. Ever since that day, the world and even we have been asking that question. Did God really say? There's never been a point in human history in which the Word of God has not been under some kind of attack. It's not new for us today. I would argue it's not even worse today. It's just a different form of it. And as those who want to know God more, who want to understand what He says about Himself through His Word so that we can live the way that He's called us to live, who want to have wisdom and understanding of the Holy One just as this author wants, weariness comes when we become distracted by these assaults rather than zoning in on what it is that God really does say. Rather than than zoning in on what God reveals about Himself through this Word. And that's why the author says there in verse 1, I'm weary, God, but I can prevail. How can he prevail? How can we prevail against this kind of weariness? Look at verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Several lessons that the author here Learned, and several that we can learn as we seek to trust what God says. And the first is this, that the Word of God is flawless. It's without error. Without error. Understand that when I say the Word of God, I am referring to the Bible, the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is the way that God has chosen to speak to us and the way in which he has revealed himself and what he's doing to the world. And so therefore, the claim that I am making is that the book that many of you hold in your hands or in your laps or that you're looking at on your phone right now is without error in its entirety, in its entirety. In matters that deal with history, in matters that deal with science, in matters that deal with morality, in matters that deal with wisdom, all of it is perfect. How do we know that? because the Bible itself makes that claim. And it doesn't just make the claim. It gives us enough information to know that what it's claiming is, in fact, true. Paul wrote, all Scripture is God-breathed in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And what Paul meant by all Scripture first were the Old Testament writings that he already had what we have in our Old Testament, the history and the prophets and the wisdom books of which he and the other New Testament authors would frequently cite and quote. That if you go through Paul's letters or you go through the letters of Peter and Jude and John or the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what you will see is these guys leaning on the Old Testament as the basis for much of what they were describing. They were quoting it all over the place. A perfect understanding of it through God's word. They were using it to teach us, to show us who Jesus was and what it means to live for him. So they understood it to be the authoritative word of God as he was unveiling his plan for the redemption of the world. Not only them, but Jesus himself affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. From the beginning of his ministry, when he was being tested in the wilderness, what was his primary weapon against the attacks of Satan? It was the book of Deuteronomy. If you look at the footnotes in that section where Jesus is tested in the wilderness, you see that he's quoting from God's law, the book of Deuteronomy. He affirmed the history that's given in the Old Testament. You know, I was pursuing my master's degree at the first seminary that I started in, Uh, The the professor posed this question through online discussion boards. And if you've been in online courses, online discussion boards are the worst. They are terrible. But he, he posed this question. He said... If you found out that the book of Jonah was not really a historical event, but more of a a moral lesson to be learned, then would it lessen the credibility of the Bible? And unfortunately, the subtext behind his question was not uh, to affirm that the book of Jonah was an accurate historical account. That's why I changed colleges, because I was really struggling with the the theology behind what they were teaching, and I was amazed as I read the posts that were given under his question of the number of students, seminary students, who actually didn't believe that the book of Jonah was a historical event. They believed it to be a moral lesson, but it's just too implausible to believe that a man could be swallowed up by a fish and spit out three days later. And I was amazed by this because Jesus himself affirmed the historicity of the Jonah account in Matthew chapter 12. He compares it to his own time in the grave and then talks about the the redemption and the repentance of the Ninevite people. That Jesus said this actually happened. It's not a moral account. It's an actual story that happened in history. And so if you're looking for a clue as to whether the Old Testament is true and authoritative, I don't think you have to look much further than Jesus himself. Because if Jesus says that it's authoritative, then shouldn't I also believe that about the Old Testament? But when Paul said all scripture, he wasn't just referring to the Old Testament. He was also referring to the New Testament writings that were being or would be written. And that's an amazing reality because he's referring even to his own writings as Scripture. Writing to the Thessalonians, Paul said, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the Word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Paul was already understanding that what was coming out of his mouth And what he was writing down on parchment, on scrolls, was authoritative as God's very word. That's what he meant when he said that all Scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired, or if you're reading the King James Version, given by inspiration of God. What that doesn't mean is that God was whispering over the shoulders of these biblical authors, dictating for them word for word what it was they were to write. If that were the case, all of it would look the same. But Peter gives us an explanation of what God-inspired really means. He writes, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's Spirit was acting on these authors in such a way that they were the ones writing in their own style and personalities, and yet the things that they were writing were from God. They were from God. That's why the writings of Moses and David and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and Luke and Paul and Jude and all the others look completely different in style but they communicate a consistent message throughout. It's amazing. 40 authors of widely different backgrounds and lifestyles and upbringing and professions writing 66 books over this 1,500, 2,000-year period, and yet the message is impeccably consistent throughout. There is no other book like that. None. That in itself is nothing short of miraculous. There had to be something or someone else behind it. And Peter told us that it was God's very own Spirit. The Spirit of God inspiring it for us to read it later. Now here's where I'm going with this. If all Scripture, Old Testament and New, is God-breathed, God-inspired, written by men who were being carried along by the Holy Spirit, and we know that it is impossible for God to lie, then we must conclude that what these men wrote, even though they themselves were flawed, and even though they were writing in their own hand and personality, what they wrote was the flawless, inerrant Word of God. That by his very nature, God could not have inspired the biblical authors to write anything that was untrue or that would ever become untrue. And before you say that it's been tainted as it's been handed down through generations, I firmly believe that God has accounted for even that. That as his spirit has been handing his word down from generation to generation. He's been protecting it as it's been translated and handing it down year to year. So that what we have in front of us today is just as reliable and as authoritative and as truthful and as useful as it was when it was written. If you want to hear the data on that, then you can see me after service and I'll share it with you. This understanding of the flawless, perfect, inerrant word of God. It's vitally important to overcoming our weariness in a world that seeks to reduce and tear down and rationalize away or reject the Bible altogether. So you and I can only combat weariness by being anchored to a fixed point of unchanging truth. A fixed point of unchanging truth. Ephesians 4.14 says that as we mature in this understanding, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. That we need to understand that God's word is flawless so that we're not tossed back and forth by these waves of teaching and truth that changes every minute and then trust in it as the only source of real truth so that we don't get tossed about by what's going on around us. And as we do that, we learn the second lesson, that God protects those who trust in what he says. Back in verse 5 of Proverbs 30, the author ties the flawless word of God to the statement, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I don't want you to miss that connection between the flawless word of God and God being a shield to those who take refuge in him. Because we take refuge in God by trusting in what he says and by leaning into the truth of his word. Jeremiah 38 and 39 God's word to the Israelites that the Babylonians were going to lay siege to Jerusalem is coming true. God had been warning them of this through his prophet Jeremiah over and over again. And yet, because God's word is always under attack, they have continued to reject this message. Jeremiah simply because he spoke what God told him to speak and he told the truth of what was going to happen he found himself imprisoned and at one point he's lowered down into a muddy well where he is to be left for dead but we read about a man named Abed-Melech and he hears about Jeremiah being lowered down into this well and he says this thing isn't good and so he goes to the king who had allowed Jeremiah to be lowered down into the well And he petitions for the life of Jeremiah. And the king commanded that Jeremiah be brought back out of the well. In the end of chapter 39, God has this message for Ebed-Melech, who had gone to the king and petitioned him. God says, I'm about to fulfill my words against this city. My words are going to come true. This city is going to be destroyed. I told you it's going to happen. Now it's really going to happen. I'm going to do everything that I've promised, but... I will save you. You will not fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Do you see the connection there? That this man trusted in God's word through his prophet. He knew that the things God said were true, so much so that he was willing to risk his own life in order to go to the king and ask for Jeremiah's. God recognized his faithfulness, his trust, and he promised that he would not fall to those who are ransacking Jerusalem. And the same is true for you and me today. And we may, may not be faced with such an extreme situation as Jeremiah and this man, but God's promise to us is that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And don't forget that love for God is directly tied to trusting him at his word. Whoever loves me will keep my commands. God, all things work together for the good of those who love me and keep my commands and are called according to this purpose that I've given you. David wrote it this way in Psalm 56. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you in God whose word I praise, in God I trust and I'm not afraid, what can mere mortals do to me? And that's the question that we ask ourselves. What can mere mortals do to us as we stand on the truth of God's inspired word, even when it stands against the culture? Jesus said to not be afraid of those who can kill the body, but can't kill the soul. That God's protection for those who trust in his word doesn't mean that we're not going to face anger, and it doesn't mean that we're not going to face jeering and hostility and persecution, and perhaps even death at the hands of those who are against God and his word. Others have faced far worse than that. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, the author will give you a list of what others have faced at the result of God's word but rather our protection is found in the great promise that regardless of what happens, we are his. That's what his word tells us. And because I know it's true and because I know it's flawless, then I can rest in that and rely in that and be protected by that. And I think that we often have this tendency to forget that it's God's word, that it's his promises that ultimately protect us and we get it backwards. We come to believe that we are the ones who have to protect and defend the Word of God. That when the world goes on the offense seeking to cut down, explain away, or reject what God has said altogether, we want to rise to the defense of the Bible. And certainly, we should stand strong in the conviction of this truth, that I I should say, no, this is right, this is true, this is good, I should say all of those things. But there's danger in seeking to defend this book that has been defending itself for thousands of years. There's danger in that. Because the danger is that we ourselves may begin to compromise, to adjust, to rationalize, to find a way that the words on these pages fit more nicely into the culture and the world around us so that we can make it look better to the people that we're speaking to in grace and love. But the author of this proverb, verse six, and the Bible itself has a warning against that very thing. He writes, "Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you to be a liar." We see the same warning given by Moses regarding the law in Deuteronomy four, two and twelve, thirty-two, and even more pointedly at the very end of our Bibles in Revelation twenty-two, beginning in verse eighteen. John writes there, I I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. Now obviously, John's referring to the scroll that he had just written, the book of Revelation, but it's no coincidence that we find this warning at the very end of the whole counsel of God because it applies to the whole counsel of God. Because I saw it back there in Proverbs 30 and because I saw it back in what Moses wrote. It's the next lesson that we learn that we are not to add or subtract from God's Word. That if God's Word is perfect as we established, then it certainly doesn't need me to put into it more than what's there or to take away from it. And yet, if we're not careful, we'll do both in the name of defending it, or rather defending ourselves as we seek to live under it. We add to it when we think it's insufficient. When we think it's lacking something important to make it more cohesive or amiable or missing some key element of how it is that we are to live. The Pharisees in Jesus' time were notorious for this. They would take something that was found in the law and think, you know, that's good, but it just needs a little bit more to make it, to make it perfect. God said, don't work on the Sabbath, and so we don't even want you to help one another on the Sabbath. If you see someone hurt along the side of the road, don't, don't bother doing it if it's your day of rest. Right? That's adding to God's word. And I find it humorous that most of the healings that are recorded in the New Testament happen on what day of the week? The Sabbath, in front of the Pharisees, because he wanted to show them what was wrong in this line of thinking that we should not be adding to God's word. Larry Osborne warns against this kind of thinking in the church today in his book called Accidental Pharisees. He writes that we have to avoid the temptation to up the ante and to raise the bar of discipleship so high that it disqualifies all but the most committed and thus thins the herd that Jesus came to expand. We do it in the name of increasing holiness and yet adding to God's word actually cuts it down. It takes away from it. It it tells the world this isn't sufficient for you in how you're to live. But on the other end of the spectrum is the tendency to subtract from God's word. And this is, may not seem as obvious as someone saying, you don't need to pay attention to this piece right here, even though, even though there are some well-known, self-proclaiming Christians today who say you can just take that part out. You don't like that? Just, just ignore it. One... Author and influencer wrote on Oprah proclaiming, I think the culture is already there and the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. What's he saying? The culture's right, the New Testament's wrong, and so get on board, or you're going to become irrelevant. It's not going to work anymore. That's blatant subtraction. We may not do that, but we do it in other ways when we make adjustments and compromises to what it really does say because we believe it's become irrelevant or represents an indictment of our own way of living. And so I go back to that same question in Genesis chapter 3, did God really say? And I begin to rationalize the parts that I can take out so that I can continue living the way that I want to live. And we can point to any number of areas in living, but we've all done that. We've all looked at God's word and said, I I don't like this piece, and so I'm going to take it out. I'm going to continue living this way, because surely God didn't mean that. The world is different today, so I can can live this way. And, and, And all along we hear the serpent saying, did God really say? Well, yes, he did really say. What we need to understand is that Hebrews four twelve is just as true today as it was two thousand years ago. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It judges the attitudes of our heart. It still applies even in those areas that the culture has deemed it to be outdated and irrelevant or those areas where I've deemed it to no longer apply because I want to keep doing what I've been doing in my life. See, not only is the Bible completely perfect and sufficient, needing nothing to be added or taken away, it's, it's powerful as it stands. And that's the final lesson that we learn, that there is power in the Word of God. The author of Hebrews says that it cuts through, it, it penetrates, not just through flesh, but through soul and spirit. It gets right in there, right in the center of our heart, and it judges our motives and our attitudes and the intentions of my heart and reveals not where it is lacking, not where the word is lacking, but where I am lacking. It shows me where, do you, where it is I need to shore up. Where it is I need to make adjustments so that I can continue living the way that God wants me to live. I may believe that I'm opening up my Bible to read it and the reality is that my Bible is reading me and it's showing me what well, my attitude, my motives, my heart and all of these things. It's reading me and it's teaching me and it's rebuking me and it's correcting me and it's training me in righteousness so that I may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work that God places in front of me it shows itself to have the power to tear down and to raise up the power to kill and to give life the power to affirm or to discipline the power to see god's will accomplished from the beginning of time throughout all eternity but there's not just power in god's word to equip us who are seeking to follow christ But there's great power in its ability to save those who are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, without this flawless Word of God, without this inerrant God inspired, this inspired utterance of God given to us through the pages of our Bible, without it, not one of us in this room would be saved. Not one of us would be saved because it's in the words on these pages that we've come to know of our sin, that we've come to know of our separation from God, that we've come to know of God's great plan of redemption, that we've come to know of our need for a Savior, and that we've come to know of the work that Jesus fulfilled on the cross to meet that need and to to restore that separation and to free us from that sin. Reveals to us our response of confession and repentance and baptism. Paul writes in Romans 1:16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It's the power of God that brings salvation. And every time a person makes that profession of faith, what he's saying, what he or she is really saying, I trust God's word that these things are true. And because they're true, I'm protected by the promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Because they're true, I can be freed from this life of sin, this life of deadness. It's not even life, it's being dead in transgressions and sin. It's a promise that has and will continue to outlast every definition of truth that the culture around us can come up with. Because we know that if God says, I can do this, and God has done this, then God will do this again. And he will continue to do it over and over and over again until Jesus Christ Himself returns to take us back to be where He is. That is the promise that God has given us through His Word. And that is the promise, that is the antidote for the weariness that is found in our world and our culture today. That we're only saved through His Word. And so we want to respond to God's Word. And our invitation is for you to respond to to God's Word because while the culture may change and while kingdoms may come and fall God's word endures forever and that is a great promise for us let's stand up and let's pray together Father we Lord again we just thank you for your word we thank you you've revealed to us our need and you've revealed to us how to meet that need And you've done all the work to make sure that we can respond to you and know that your salvation is real. That our freedom is assured. And that we get to be with you. So continue to draw us ever deeper into this understanding of who you are, Lord, that we wouldn't grow weary. But we would rest in the truth of what you've done and what you continue to do. Thank you for Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. If you'd like to respond this evening, this is your invitation to come.